Over recent times on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at the early church, the kind of community they built together, their social ethic, the message they preached, and so forth. And now we come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. John, who was one of Jesus' original disciples, was on the island of Patmos, and he had some visions there that were written down and ended up as the last book in our New Testament. For sure, it's not easy to understand, and it is controversial, but it's also a rich resource of things that help us in our journey here and now, and it's also a source of great hope for our future. So, let's get started. The first section uh, that we're going to begin looking at is kind of the easiest of all to relate to us now because it's Jesus' message to seven churches that were in the region of Turkey. And so they've been trucking along now for a while, these churches, because, you know, Paul's been going out and sharing the gospel. Churches have been formed and they're forming communities of people who are bringing some light and some love into the world. And now Jesus is speaking to the churches after they've been functioning for a while and giving a kind of a, a critique, I suppose, in, in terms of how they're doing. He gives them some praise for the things that they're doing really well. He gives them some challenges challenges over some areas where they really need to make some adjustments and he also gives them some promises. And so there are seven letters to seven churches and I just want to have a wee look at the first one today to the church in Ephesus and seeing what we can draw out that will help us in 2019. It's Ephesus way back, ancient city obviously, uh, a wealthy city, a centre of commerce, it was a free city in the sense that it was within the Roman Empire, but it was given the right for self-government. Um, they were very, very superstitious and had all sorts of magic charms and spells. And there's this thing that was called the Ephesian letters. And they were kind of, they had the superstition. If you bought one of these letters and attached it to yourself, it brought you good luck and all that kind of stuff. So very, very superstitious. And they were fanatical followers of the goddess Artemis, otherwise known as Diana. Uh, their theory was that the statue had fallen out of heaven was their story anyway. It was a short, squat, kind of ugly looking statue but they reckon it had fallen out of heaven and, uh, and they were fanatical worshippers of Artemis or Diana in the city. And Diana's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, thousands of priests and priestesses, uh, many temple prostitutes. It was also a place of asylum. So if you were, kind of, if you were on the run from the law, you could, you could run to that place and you would be kept safe. And, uh, and it brought in a huge tourist trade. And a lot of people were making a lot of money. This is what uh, William Barclay just makes this little note about the worship in the temple. He says, The worship of the temple was a weird, ecstatic, hysterical business. To the accompaniments of shouts and wailings, the burning of incense and the playing of the flute, the worshippers worked themselves up to an emotional and hysterical frenzy in which the darkest and most shameless things could and did happen. So that's the kind of the, just the rough setting of Ephesus, the ancient Ephesus. And into that situation, Paul turns up. Paul the Apostle, he's going around. He's been sent to the Gentiles to go and bring good news about Jesus wherever he went. So he turns up in Ephesus and he kind of thinks to himself, well, where do I, where do I get started? And he found, a, he found a, a small group of people who identified themselves as disciples of Jesus. So he starts chatting with them and, um, 
and talking to them about some of the basics of the Christian faith and found that they didn't know too much. They'd been baptized into John's baptism. Uh, they didn't know too much about Jesus. He talked to them about the Holy Spirit. And they said, well, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What's all this? And so they kind of, they were just doing their best to be followers, but didn't know too much. And he started with them. And as time goes by, he starts, he starts preaching in the city and people start to turn to Christ. And so it's a whole good news story. In Acts 19, it says this. Uh, there's a real, you know, tremendous response to the preaching of Paul. And it says, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, this is all to do with their superstition and stuff, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is which is. 50,000 days wages. So in today, you know, if you're making a couple of hundred dollars a day, that'd be about $10 million in today's, in today's money. So, so, so they are piling all of this stuff together. It was worth a lot of money. They were burning up $10 million worth of goods because they'd identified that it was also to do with superstition and occultic kind of practices. And they thought, no, we're turning to Christ. So we want to we wanna part company with this stuff. And they thought, what do we do? Do we, do we sell it on to someone else? No, it's not going to do anyone any good. We can't sell it on, so we're going to burn it up. And they suffered great financial loss from burning all of this stuff. But they didn't seem too sad about it at all. In fact, they were deliriously happy because they'd found this new life in Christ and they were quite happy to get rid of the old life. And it says, and in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So the church was having a significant impact on the city. A lot of people coming to Christ and the whole thing is a good news story. But as time went by, uh, the people who were making a lot of money out of the temple uh, realised, man, that, that this was going to start to cost them. This was going to affect their business. And they started to get antagonistic towards the church. And the followers of Diana Rotimus, who were fanatical, they gathered together and they chanted for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city, it says, was in an uproar. The church became tremendously unpopular. Everyone became angry with them. And all of a sudden, the church went from this period of great growth and development and influence to becoming the really unpopular and everyone was antagonistic towards them. They were fearing for their lives. It was tough. So it went from kind of wonderful to awful in a very short space of time. It was like the whole city had turned against them. So sometime later when Paul was passing by, he met with the elders on a beach. And I'm just going to give you this one. And then we are going to get to the letter. And these were his words to them as he met the elders on a beach close to Ephesus. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So this was his last meeting with them in person. And he, and he was just passing by, met them on the beach. But he gave them this kind of rather 
it was tough news to get, I suppose, for them in a way, because that the church had done so well, and then they'd been plunged into this very difficult situation where it seemed like everyone was against them. And now Paul is stopping by and saying, actually, um, I'm just passing by and I'm just commending you to the grace of God, but I've actually got some bad news for you. I've kind of had a peek into the future and I realize that there's going to be some people, even from amongst yourselves, are going to rise up and they're going to cause real internal strife inside of the church. So come on, he said, uh, I want you to really be, be vigilant to, to, to look after those that are inside of the church. That's the background. So now we fast forward, I don't know how many years, maybe 20 years, something like that. Not sure. We fast forward 20 years to John who's on the island of Patmos. And Jesus gives him a message for this church in Ephesus. The city that Paul went to, began preaching, formed this growing church that was full of life, who would do anything for Jesus and who could burn up 10 million worth of superstitious scrolls in a, in a day and be happy about it because they were just so thrilled to be living this new life with Christ. And then they went through this really hard time. The whole city was against them. It was tough. And then they had these warnings about people even rising up from amongst themselves who were going to cause division and pain and problems within their, within their church community. So now we're getting the message some years later from Jesus to the church. And this is what he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Okay, this is Jesus speaking to the church some years later. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds because he knows everything. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. You have persevered. You have endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I do hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent... I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To whom I overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Alrighty, some reflections about this. Firstly, he reveals himself as one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are symbolic of the church. And he walks, he says, among the seven golden lampstands. And that's kind of, it's kind of encouraging to know and to reflect on the fact that just as Jesus walked amongst those early churches through the region of Turkey, he's promised to be with us now. He still walks among the churches. As churches are meeting inside of Palmerston North at the moment, we can know that Jesus is walking amongst us. And Jesus is here, right here and right now. You can't see him with your eyeballs, but yet he's promised to be here and we know that he is. And that is absolutely an awesome thing to know and to be encouraged with. And he gives them some praise. So this is the first thing. How have I, how have I done my notes? Here we go. He gives them some praise. 
This is how he starts. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You can't tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So they worked hard. They'd been through a tough time. It's like they had all sorts of difficulties. They had pressures from the outside when everyone was against them. They had pressures and difficulties on the inside when these guys were rising up to draw disciples after themselves. And they had persevered. They'd endured through a really, really, really tough time. Jesus knew that it was tough. He understood it was difficult. And he's saying, you guys have done really well. You just kept going because there are times in life when it gets tough, whether you're in a church or whether you're in a job or whether you're in a relationship, there are times when it can be tough. And he's saying there are times when you could have given up, but you didn't. You kept on going, you persevered and you kept and you kept moving forwards. And he's saying that is really, that is really awesome. And he said, you, you haven't tolerated wicked men. So he's not talking about like people who go to work or go to school or you know, go out into the community and look around and say, oh, you people are all wicked around me. I can't tolerate you. I just can't, I can't stand you any longer. He's not talking about the community in which he lived uh, or the wider world in which they lived. He was talking about people who were rising up inside of the church to draw disciples away after themselves. And he said, you didn't put up with it. When these people rose up, you kind of, you, you, you wouldn't have enjoyed this. It would have been a difficult time, but you, were, you looked after the church. You did everything you could to look after the unity and the health of the church and to make sure that people were okay. And if you had to deal with an issue, even though you might not have wanted to, you dealt with those issues. I know it was tough, but you did it because you loved the church and you did what was right. And he's saying, good on you, church. You did really, really well. Well done. And uh, it certainly had been a challenging time for them, that's for sure. And he was commending them. He was praising them for the way they'd endured and handled the difficulties that life threw at them. You know, sometimes we have this picture of life that, we, you know, everything is just, just going to work out brilliantly and perfectly. But some parts of life are difficult whether it's in church or whether it's in work or whether it's at school or whether it's in your, with your friends or in your relationships or in your marriage or, or, or in your family, there are, there are times in life that are difficult. And it's easy to just say, well, I'm just going to quit on everything. I'm just going to go and reinvent myself somewhere. But uh, he's saying, no, you've persevered and well done. Good on you. But he gives them a challenge as well. And this is what he says in verse four and five. This is the challenge. But he says, I've got something, I do have something against you. He says, you've forsaken the love that you had at first. So they'd worked hard, they'd sorted out the problems as they came up. But something had happened inside of them that Jesus talks about the love that they had at first had somehow faded. And so what 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 is that about? Is that is that a feeling? Or what is that? But something obviously had happened. For some reason, they'd gone from being full of enthusiasm and making Christ the priority in their lives and absolutely going for God with everything that they had. They'd kind of lost that somehow. They were still doing okay. They were going through the motions, but something was lacking on the inside of their hearts. 
but I'm not sure that it was just an emotion or a feeling that they were lacking because he says, repent and do the things you did at first. So it's kind of like it's something that maybe went beyond feelings. It was something that happened. No longer was Christ the priority that he once was. No longer were they wanting to pursue God in the way they once were. No longer did they have that enthusiasm in serving God. And somehow that had gone. And when you've got that kind of essential enthusiasm in life, it takes you through all sorts of things. I mean, I I told you recently when I first came to New Zealand, I was nine when I came to New Zealand, I'd always wanted to play rugby as a kid, but our schools didn't play rugby in England. They used they played soccer with the round ball and kicked that around. And I wanted to play rugby because I just because I just it looked like the game that was designed for me. And we came to New Zealand and I loved that. So we would get up, I would get up, you know, on a on a winter's morning as a kid. I'm sure some of you would have as well. And you go out and it's kind of first thing in the morning and bike a few miles down to the park where you can play rugby. It's winter. It's cold. It's wet. It's muddy. Who wants to go down to a park in the middle of winter at eight o'clock in the morning and roll around in the mud for an, for an hour or so? But it's kind of like it wasn't exactly hardship for me. I just loved that. I just loved it. I just thought it was awesome. So it wasn't like... I know it's the right thing, but I'll go down, I'll play the rugby. Uh, but it's kind of like, it's just, it's just a drag. You get out of it if you can. If you, th- you ring up and say, oh, sorry, I got, I, I, got a, I, got a, I got a bit of a cold. I don't know if I could make it today. Because, you know, you've lost your enthusiasm or your passion for doing the thing. Or when I got a little older, I got into surfing and I just loved, I just loved surfing. It, got, it like got into my veins. And again, we would get up in the dark on a Saturday morning and we would get out to the beach. It didn't matter how cold it was. We didn't care. We'd get into the water and we'd have a surf. And we just, lo- we just loved that. It was, it was no sacrifice. It was our joy. It was our pleasure. We just loved to get out there. Uh, first thing in the morning before the wind got up and the way the water's still really smooth and glassy and waves are rolling in and it was just you know we just we just loved it it was something that we loved and when you love something it's like you'll make sacrifices but it doesn't seem like a sacrifice you'll get up early or you'll spend money or you'll spend time you make it your priority and it doesn't seem like oh what a drag it just seems like a joy And it seems like that the church started off with that kind of attitude towards their relationship with God and serving God. It was a joy. They could burn up $10 million worth of scrolls and it was no problem to them because they'd found this new life in Christ and they were just excited. They had this kind of first love. But after a while, they'd kind of lost something. And Jesus tells them to repent and do the things you did at first. So if this is just talking about a feeling, how do you get a feeling back again? How do you get a feeling? And some people would say, oh, no, the, maybe you need to do something to, to get the feelings back. But then what if the feelings don't come back? And if we're just relying on feelings, they're very, you know, feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are important, but, but, but how do you get a feeling back? Where, where do I find that? You know, there's no shop where you can go buy feelings. There's, there's no, you can't go and trade me and buy some feelings. There's no, where do you get the feelings from? They just, if they're currently lacking. And Jesus didn't say, try and get the feelings back again. Try and get them back. He says, no, repent and do the things you did at first. Repent means to change your way of thinking. Literally, it's what it means. Change your way of thinking. 
And sometimes even we put a lot of emotion into that thought of that word repentance. We see it as a very emotional word. When we think of telling someone to repent or, or, or someone's telling us to repent, we're thinking it comes with anger. Someone's wagging the finger and they're really cross. We're thinking it's kind of there's anger in the word repentance. And then we're thinking if we do repent, then there's a whole lot of sorrow and tears and feeling bad. And so we attribute all sorts of feelings to the word repentance, whether that's anger or sorrow or tears or regret or whatever. But it really just simply means to change the way that you think, change the way you are approaching something, maybe change the priorities with which you're living your life. You're making a conscious and deliberate act to change something when you repent. It might come with emotion, but it might not. The key thing is we're making a change. We're making a change in the direction that we are going in. Uh, I, I remember when our daughter was really young. Uh, she was, I don't know how big she was. She was small. She was a toddler. And we were at the Auckland Museum. This is one of these scary moments that was almost life-changing, but in actual fact wasn't. Uh, we were in the museum in Auckland. And if you've been there, I haven't been there for years and years and years. But there are, it's got several stories. And we were walking around on one of the upper levels and what there is, is there's a little, there's a kind of like, a, back in those days anyway, there was kind of like a barrier, like a little fence or a little wall. And if you went over that wall, then you would drop several, you know, couple of floors, two or three floors down onto a marble floor, which is not what you'd want to do. And uh, Sarah, who was very, you know, kind of like, you know, in that toddler stage, and we'd sort of looked away, we were looking at something, examining something, and she had climbed up on top of the wall and she was straddling the wall. And if she had have gone one way, she'd have fallen several floors down and, and probably would not have survived. And Irene saw her doing that. She knew exactly if, 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 if Irene had gone, oh, Sarah, or, or, or had growled at her or told her off or done something sudden or freaked out, that Sarah would have, her reflex reaction would have been to have moved away. And because she was finely balanced on the top of the wall, if she had moved away, she would have slipped over, would have lost a grip, and, and that would have just been a tragic, tragic day, a difficult day for us. And so Irene kept her composure and goes like, and she must have caught my eye, and she goes, oh, Sarah, look at this over here, and just got Sarah to shift her weight in the other direction. And as soon as she started to shift her weight, I kind of swooped in behind her and picked her up off the wall. It was like, oh, thank God for that. It still kind of freaks me out thinking about it. It was just horrible what could have happened. But the point was she just needed to make that change, to move away from that side and move away to this side and everything was okay. And that's kind of something to do. That's kind of like repentance in a way. We're kind of leaning towards this way. They had lost their first love. Everything was becoming duty. It was becoming dry. Jesus was no longer the priority that he once was. They no longer had the joy in serving him. And they were called to repent. It didn't necessarily have to have anger or, or a harsh telling off or or tears or, or regrets or anything like that. What it needed was a change. It just needed to change their trajectory. Instead of moving this way, they made a conscious decision. Now, we want to kind of put Christ first in our lives. We want to make him the priority of our lives. And there's nothing better in life than serving him. I'm going to move right on to the last little bit. And the promise, verse 7. He says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he gives them this marvellous promise in the end. If you just listen to what i got to say, you kind of respond to that. Here's a promise. I'm giving you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. According to Ignatius, they did respond to those words. They did return to their first love. They got to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. So the message of the letter essentially is, your hard work is of value, so keep on going and don't give up. Secondly, maintain the priority and the simplicity of loving God and loving others. And when the going gets tough, remember there's a reward that makes every bit of effort, pain, discouragement or sacrifice worth it in the end.